Well, good morning. How are you? You good? Uh, The old mechanical watch, pretty cool there, how they built that and designed that. Let's just take a little survey while they're finishing up offering. We did this in first service, but this in second service. And uh, let me ask you a question. All right, how many of you in the room own at least one watch? At least one watch. Okay. How many of you own three or more watches? Yeah, a lot of worldly people in this room. (laughs) How, How many of you own five or more watches? Five or more. All right, we're going to see if a man wins or if a woman wins this, all right? How many of you own um, nine or more watches in the room? Nine or more. Stand up. If you own nine or more watches, stand up. Stand up and stay standing. Stay standing. All right, stay standing. All right, how about 12, 12 watches or more? 12 watches or more? It's all guys. Have you noticed that? No, there's, you have one? Oh, you're not, okay, you're not staying, all right. Uh, 15 watches or more. 15 watches or more. All right, how many watches you got? How many? 30? You have 50? How many do you have? 35? Okay. Oh my gosh, you have 50 watches. That's a guy. A guy has 50 watches. That's amazing. Um, In second service, a guy also won. He had 29 watches. In first service, I won't give you her name, but Becky (laughs) has 100, 100 watches. So we all took a vote in first service, and we, we don't have a building campaign, but if we had one, when we have one, we're going to ask Becky to donate all 100 of her watches, and the rest of us won't have to contribute at all. It'll all be, it will be fully, fully paid for. Well, the old mechanical watch that you saw up there um, was designed and built about 1510. The, the inventor, his name was a guy named Peter Henley, and Peter Henley... Um, is credited as the designer of the inventor of the very first mechanical watch. And it's got the spring, and it's got the, the balance wheel, and the oscillation, and it's got the gears, and they call it the, the escapement, where it, it lifts the gears, and the, the, the hands begin to move just a little bit. And uh, what's really interesting about that watch is that that first watch, pocket watch, for hundreds of years didn't keep very good time. In fact, that, that watch would lose, a good watch would lose 15 minutes a day, and a not-so-good watch would lose 30 minutes a day. So you're going to somebody's house for dinner at 7 o'clock, and it's really 7.30, and you've ticked off the hostess because you're already 30 minutes late. So that watch didn't keep very good time, but you contrast that to this atomic clock. And this atomic clock is the most accurate clock in the world. So if the Mechanical watch would lose between 15 and 30 minutes. This, this particular clock boasts and brags by its scientists that it will only lose one second every 70 million years. Now, I don't know how they know that, you know. I mean, because the dude that set came up with that is not going to be alive when this is all over, right? But that's really amazing. And so, the, the, the key to, to a watch is everything has to be in alignment. Everything has to work well together. We all know that. It's true in other areas of our life. 
It's true in business. It's true in sports. It's true in family. It's true in marriage. It's true in a neighborhood. I mean, we, we all get that. We, we all understand that alignment. Now, how many of you have worked like for a company or for a business that was like not even close to alignment, like, like AWOL, like way out there, nowhere close. That was fun, wasn't it? That was great. You enjoyed those, those 30 minutes that you worked for that company, right? How many of you have worked, though, for a company where everybody's like in sync and everybody knows what they're doing? Nobody? Okay, good. Right, raise your hand. Okay, a, f- a, few, a few of us. Um, I don't know that the Bucks are going to win this afternoon. I'm going to watch the game. I'm hoping the Bucks win this afternoon. But if the Bucks beat the Panthers this afternoon, the team that's in the most alignment and lined up with their strategies will win. A- any Packers fans, by the way, from Thursday night's football game? Uh, you have a lot of courage to even admit that. After, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Seattle just—they just put a spanking on you Thursday night. And, and I'm not a real Seahawks fan, but they, they've started right where they left off, didn't they, with the, with the Super Bowl from, from last year. So, so we get that about alignment. But husband and wife are parents, and they're parenting, and they're not in alignment. That creates great stress and turmoil at home, doesn't it? And so if, if they're in alignment, it's the exact same thing with the church. Exact same thing with the church. And so we're going to talk about alignment, and we're talking about the body of Christ. So if you're like new to church and you don't really understand much church, this is really a great time because we're going to talk about church and how the church can be lined up as a great institution and an organization. What else is interesting about this is there's about 25 different ways to do church, and probably 18 of them are good. And there's nothing wrong with probably 18 of them, but we're going to tell you the two or three ways that we've been impressed upon to do church. So again, there's a whole bunch of ways to do church. Probably 18 of them are great, um, but we don't do all 18. We only do two or three things, and, and hopefully we will do you know, those, those hopefully kind of well. So when, you, when you're looking at maybe a new job, you kind of look at the company and you look at maybe the founder and maybe who the CEO is. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to start with the big G-O-D. We're starting with God. And the CEO uh, is, is Jesus Christ. And so there's a little phrase out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. So if you got a Bible and you want to follow along this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, there's a little phrase that we're going to start with, and it says, let us draw near to God. So repeat that with me. Let us draw near to God. Say it again. Let us draw near to God. Maybe a little more passion. Ready? Let us draw near to God. And if you're new to church or you've not been to church or like this is, you, know, you came back to church and you thought there was like free food, like all three hours, you know, we only do the free food this morning uh, at eight o'clock. And so, you know, if you're asking like one of those two or three ways that we do church, we, we just bribe people. That's how we do things. We're trying to bribe you to come to eight o'clock. We need you at eight o'clock. And we're not ashamed to tell you that. So if you're new to all this, you might be going like, I don't know how. If I knew how to be near to God, I would already be near to God. I, I, I'm not sure what that even, I think I'm disqualified. I think because of my lifestyle and what I've said and what I've done, and if you knew all my thoughts and all my memories, I don't know how to get close to God. So, I, I, Kurt, I'm not, I'm not sure that you can. 
And, and, and maybe some of us in the room, we feel like, you know, we, we, we would love to be close to God. We would love to be. But, but we're not sure that we've ever seen anybody close to God. Again, maybe you're kind of new to church or you're, you're new here this morning and you're going to be honest with you. I don't know that I've ever really seen anybody really close to God. I hired some people who were Christians and I thought they were close to God, but after getting to know them and I watched their work ethic, I thought, you know, they, they really weren't all that close to God. And, and, and I dated some, I dated, you know, and I'm telling you, she, she wasn't close to God at all after we got into the whole dating thing. And, or maybe you married one and you're going, this, this, is, this just isn't working. I, and, and in your life, it's possible that you've never seen anyone really close to God. And so what he's trying to say to us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, he's, he's going to say, you can and here's how, and here's why, and here's what you do with that. So let's look at the context for this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is, this is our context. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy... I'm going to read about three verses that if you're new to church, you're going to go, what in the world did he just say? I'm going to explain it. Give, give me five minutes. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place... Is that a sports bar this afternoon watching football? What does that mean? No, it's, it's talking about there was the holy of holies and the holy place, and he's talking about where the temple was. We get to go in there now by the blood of Jesus, verse, verse 20. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain. And remember when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the, of the curtain was torn in two. And now it's talking about, he's talking about Christ, verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now here's our verse, verse 22. Because we have all this, great priest, curtain's been destroyed, opportunities, we get to draw near to God. So can you get yourself to God? Can you draw near to God just because you, you, you want to? No, you can't draw near to God. God draws you near to him. He allows you to come near to him. So let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that our faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled. And we'll come back to all this. Let's go back to verse 1, because verse 1 is the context for even verses uh, 19 through 21. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Nobody could keep the law. Nobody kept the Ten Commandments. Nobody kept the 613 additional commandments. Nobody kept the thousands of oral laws. Nobody could keep them. But they were only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer felt guilty for their sins. And then what he's saying is, is all these people who'd sinned came to the temple, came to the synagogue, and they offered the blood of some animal, and they left just as sinful. And what the author of Hebrews is going to say is that when you and I come to Christ, we don't have to leave feeling condemned. We don't have to leave feeling guilty. If we come to Christ, Christ will remove all the shame and all the guilt from us. And those sacrifices, when they come day after day and year after year, they're just a reminder. They're just an annual reminder of sins. 
And he says, by the way, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what happened? All you got was like a do-over. All you got was like a fresh sheet of paper. All you got was like, okay, here's the appeasement of God's anger. The Old Testament sacrifices never had the power or the potency to take away sin. It just gave you a clean sheet of paper to go forward. All the sins were still recorded. You just got to go forward. It's impossible for that. Therefore, when Christ, now here's where the music changes. Here's where the drama begins. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. In other words, God wasn't thrilled about that system either. It was just foreshadowing what Christ would do. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here am I. This is Jesus. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifice and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. And he sets aside the first to establish the second. The first was the old covenant. Now, none of us can kind of get there because we don't offer the blood of bulls and turtle doves and pigeons, but they did. And so that system was like you came again and again and again. Okay, I lied, so I got to offer blood. You know, I committed adultery. I got to offer the blood. Okay, I, 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 you know, I cheated. I betrayed somebody. And so what he's saying is, is, is you had to keep coming back again and again and again. And some churches do that to you. You leave some churches and they just make you feel guilty all the time. Here's the point. When you, when you come to Christ... All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, because it's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's all about him. It's all about how powerful he is. Here I am. I've come to do your will. And he sets aside the first, which is the old covenant, and he establishes the second, which is now the new covenant. Look at the next part. And by that will, we have been made holy. That's just cool, folks. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Look at the next verse. It kind of reminds us again how they used to do it. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Are, 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 we, are we getting this? This, this, are we tracking together? Does this make sense so far? Okay. Look at the next part. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, see, when this priest, this is not like any other priest. This is Jesus. This is the high priest. When this priest offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, and by the way, he didn't have to offer them again and again and again and again and again and again and again. He just had to do it once. When Jesus offered his blood, the power, the strength, the potency of that blood would change everything for all times. Because after he did it, he goes and sits down at the right hand of God. Look at the next verse. And this is one of the coolest verses in the entire Bible, people. This is a verse you need to get, we need to get our minds around this. For by one sacrifice, this is on the cross, Jesus made 
perfect you and me. Every one of us in this room, if we're Christian, in God's eyes, you are perfect. In God's eyes, you're perfect. You go, I don't feel perfect. I struggle, I sin, I mess up. That's not the point. It's not about you. It's always about him. It's always about what he does. It's not about what you do. He took your sins and he washed them clean forever and forever. By one sacrifice, Jesus made perfect forever you and me who are still in the process of being made holy. It's a cool verse. We're still growing. We're still changing. We're still transforming. But he's made us perfect forever. So he says to us, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near to God. Okay, so if Jesus does it all, then what's our role in this? If, if I can't get myself near to God, what, what do I do? I accept Christ. I, I receive him by faith with a sincere heart. I give him my heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings, I come in faith. I trust you. I choose to believe in you. I choose to accept you. I choose to believe that you will forgive me of all my sins, and I choose to walk according to your way. So I draw near to God with a sincere heart that he's able to do it, and I have full assurance that he's capable of keeping all of his promises. And then my confirmation is my heart's been sprinkled to cleanse me from a guilty conscience. And I walk away from this relationship, Now I walk with this relationship free and fully convinced that I'm now a believer and I have my, my conscience cleansed. We have our bodies washed with pure water. And some people think that's a reference to Christian baptism. Some people think that's just a symbol of cleansing. If I was a good lawyer, I could probably make a case for both, either one. But, but regardless, the Bible talks about we're baptized. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience. It's again, it's that step of faith that you take to walk in Christ. Look, look at verse 23. So he says, because of all this, because of what Christ did, because of these amazing sacrifices, because that you get to go forward with a heart full of faith and a conscience that's cleansed, Let's hold on. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because he who promised is faithful. Drop down to verse 25. And verse 25 is, is a verse. Jonathan made an absolute mess up here, that's for sure. Um, verse 25 is a verse that we, we pastors have like taken completely out of context on a regular basis. And we like, we like beat people up about going to church. And so verse 25 says that we're not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And so pastors take this verse and they like beat you up on church attendance. Come to church. Come every Sunday. Church is open Sunday night. Come Sunday night. It's open Wednesday night. Real Christians come on Wednesday night. You know, uh, if there's a week, midweek Bible study in the mornings, you know, it. 4.45 a.m., you know, great Christians come to that too. And, and you know, every time the church door is open, every, you ought to be there. That's not the point of this verse. So when, when you see me like some, some people will see me from our church this afternoon who aren't here this morning, and they're like, they're doing this, man. I mean, you know, I go to Publix, and they're like, oh, there's the pastor. We've got to hide, you know. 
there's pastor. Like, like I'm the attendance Nazi or something, you know? And, 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 and I, I don't want to say I don't care, but I care, but I don't, I mean, the point is, we, we, why, why are we gathering together? Well, the, the point is not beat people up on coming together, but why? Why do we come together? What's the purpose of coming together? Well, the purpose is, look at verse 23. Go back to verse 23. So we're going to hold on to this unswerving hope that we profess because he who promised is faithful. Then look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, we're going to consider how we can spur like one another on toward love and and toward good deeds. Why do we get together? Because we're going to shore up each other's faith. And verse 22 talks about, let us draw near to God and let us encourage each other's faith. And here's how this works. The reason we meet together is maybe your faith this week is really high. And maybe somebody else like near you, their faith is like really low. And so we meet together to shore up each other's faith. That's why we get together, whether it's two or three people in a Bible study or your connect groups this, this next week or it's thousands of people on a Sunday morning. The reason we get together is we come together because all of us kind of leak spiritually. And all of us need somebody else in our lives who will lift us up and boost us up and shore up our faith. Last night, um, I had just a, a terrible funeral, just terrible. It's just a tragic funeral last night. It was all the way out to McDill Air Base and um, close to there. There's a restaurant there and there's a, a young couple from our church and they, they lost their baby. Baby born, full term, lost their baby. Ah, uh, there's nothing more painful than that. And so I'm driving out there to McDill to a restaurant out there, and they went. They live in Safety Harbor. They come to the 8 o'clock service. And, and so they, they chose a restaurant out there so they wouldn't have to drive by it every day. I wonder why we were so far out there. They did it on purpose. And so I know, I know what this is going to be like. And I'm driving out there, and I'm choking the tears talking to my Heavenly Father. I know what this is going to be like. I've done this 20, 25 times. I know the drill. I know the pain. I know, the, I know what to say. I know how they're going to respond. I, I, and it's just, I cannot tell you how difficult that situation is. And so, you know, this large family and this huge table, what are we doing in that, in that memorial service? We're shoring up their faith. We've come alongside to shore up their faith because right now, if I were them, if you were them, your faith would be a little bit low. And so we meet together as a body of Christ to lift each other up, to shore up each other's faith, to help each other. And all of us in this room, I I think life is just an uphill climb, don't you? Life is difficult. And so even this morning, some of you really need to be here. You're a Christian. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to heaven. You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. But you need other people with skin on in this room who are going to love you and encourage you. And, 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 and you need to come and worship and sing and listen to Scripture because it shores up your faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so what is the author of Hebrews trying to say to us? We, we get together and we help each other. And then because we're Christians... Because we're Christians, we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's just talk about that for just a minute. Because as a church, 
We ought to be incredibly loving, shouldn't we? We ought, to, we ought to be able to love all these children that come in. We have 400 children this morning. Now, can you imagine if all 400 children leave this morning and they all go, I love my church. I love my church. I love going to church. I just love my church. Can you imagine how those kids are going to feel about, about the fellowship of the body of Christ? Middle schoolers and high schoolers, and you're all in the front row and the front pews down here. Um, you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to goof up. You're going to say and do some stupid things. You, you are. I, I'm not predicting it, and I'm not encouraging it because there's tremendous consequences for that. But, but as a body of, of adults, we're here for you. We love you. We, we support you. Those of you that are married in the room, marriage is tough. Marriage is tough even when you've done everything right and you marry the, marry the right person the right way. Marriage, so, so what do we do? You know, if you're struggling, we encourage husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. We encourage wives to see to it that, that you show amazing respect. We come around you. If, you. if you're single in the room today, you may have a whole different group of, of, of problems and you may be alone, you may, may be lonely. And this ought to be a place where we honestly and, and legitimately, properly love you and, and serve you and honor you. If you're a senior adult, seniors have different fears and different problems than the guys on the front couple rows do. But nevertheless, the seniors in this room have all kind of pain and problems and fears and struggles. Church ought to be a place where we shore up each other's faith. We're going to make it. We're there for you. We're here for you. We're here for each other. So we, we, we meet together because we've been saved, not to get saved. Christ already saved us. But we meet together to build up and to boost up and to bolster one another's faith. And we spur each other on to love each other. And then we, we figure out how to do some good deeds. Now, why, why, do, we, why do we learn to love each other? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if there's no condemnation for you, there shouldn't be any condemnation from you. I want you, I want you, to, I want you to memorize that. If there's no condemnation for you, there, there shouldn't be any condemnation from you. So when we get together, it should be real easy for us yeah, you goofed up. Yeah, you're struggling. Yeah, you messed up. That's okay. There's no condemnation from us because there's no condemnation for you. So we learn to love each other. But we also spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, now why do we do that? Why are we trying to do good deeds? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So when you are doing the kinds of deeds that God has asked you to do, God gets glory for it. Why do you spend so much time praying? And God gets glory for that. Why do you give? God gets glory for that. Why do you serve? God gets glory for that. You see, the things that you and I do for the king, that's what makes a difference for the kingdom. And so we learn then to, to operate in the ministry of the Spirit. Last week, I kind of wrapped up our Holy Spirit series talking about there's a general will of God, but there's also a specific will of God. And the general will of God is in the scriptures, 
But the specific will of God is through the Spirit. The general will of God talks about marriage, but the the Spirit, the specific will of God may tell you who to marry. The general will of God talks about parenting, but the Holy Spirit tells you how to parent. We've got three different kids. God's led us to parent all three of these kids in in three different ways. The the, The Scriptures, the general will of God may tell you to work, get a job, but the specific will of God may tell you what kind of work or what type of work that, that, that you get involved in. And so now today, when it comes to the good deeds, we know the general will of God is for us to do good deeds and good works. But the Spirit of God, through Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And so you and I have got the Spirit inside of us stirring it up telling us how to love, how to do good deeds, and how to honor one another. Can I have two more minutes? I, I'm, I'm going to take it, but I'm just asking. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being polite. Can I, can I have two more minutes? See, what, what, what do you do? How do you leverage your life? What do you do with you? He saved you. He's cleansed you. He's made you perfect. He's made you holy. He's transformed you. But, but now we meet together. We're in small groups. We're in Bible studies. We meet together on Sundays. Um, but now what, what do we do with, with the love and good deeds? Listen to this story. It's really made an impression on me this past week. In the summer of 1979, my family and I lay half dead in a derelict fishing boat in the South China Sea. There were, uh, there were 83 other refugees on board, all of us fleeing Vietnam. After five days without food and water, some of the mothers began to consider the unthinkable, binding their babies' arms with strips of cloth and slipping them into the sea. I was born in the Mekong Delta of South Vietnam eight months after the country fell to the communists. My family had owned a rice-milling empire worth millions. But the Viet Cong took almost everything. And we eked out a meager existence on a tiny tract of land for four years until my parents decided that leaving was the only hope for a better future and worth the many risks we would face as boat people. Then on the sixth day at sea, a miracle happened. We were spotted by a World Vision aid ship. The crew brought us to a refugee camp in Singapore And a few months later, a Lutheran church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, sponsored my family's move to the United States. We arrived with nothing, unable to speak a lick of English. My father went to work in a fiberglass factory earning $90 a week to support a family of 10. The children in our neighborhood were friendly, but we weren't allowed to play with them. Our parents were terrified that if one of us got into a fight, we'd all be sent back to Vietnam. That fear defines the life of a refugee. Don't stand out, don't take risks, and whatever you do, don't fail. My time was divided between school, work, and church. Work gave me discipline and kept me out of trouble. Church gave me a community and a strong faith. My siblings and I walked a path two inches wide and 18 years long, but it turned out to be a good one. Together, we hold six doctorates, five master's degrees, 
from schools such as Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, the University of Pennsylvania, and NYU. When I was a student in medical school in 2002, I returned to Vietnam for the first time to visit my relatives who were still there. I was shocked by the poverty. Their houses were shacks, the walls plastered over with newspaper, bare light bulbs hung from the ceiling on electrical cords. My cousin slept on the floor. Visiting them was like walking into a parallel universe. The life that would have been mine had the wind blown our boat in a different direction. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. And I used to wonder who Jesus meant because I, I was sure it wasn't my family. The way I saw it, we've been given nothing, entrusted with nothing. And I hoped that rich and powerful people would read Jesus' words and take them to heart. But when I went to Vietnam, I finally understood he meant me. I was the one plucked from the South China Sea. I was the one granted asylum in a nation where education is available to everyone and prosperity is attainable by anyone. I worked hard to get where I am today, but the humbling truth is that my hard work was possible because of a blessing I did not deserve. And that blessing is something I must pass on in any way I can. My story is true for all of us, he writes. Whether you arrived in this country by birth or by boat, much has been given to us and much is required. That, I believe, is what it means to be a Christian in America. We've been given a lot. Every one of us in this room, we've been given opportunities, skill, talent, good brains, skill with our hands, amazing families, tremendous opportunities, every one of us in this room. And then you add Christ into that? Oh, man. You add Jesus taking away all our sins? And so what the author of Hebrews is asking you and me to do is to leverage our lives. So when we get together, let's shore up each other's faith. When we get together, let's spur one another on to love and good deeds. When we get together, let's make sure that we all focus on the opportunities just like that mechanical watch is all aligned. When the church... It's loving and doing good deeds for him and not for us. Man, the kingdom just gets healthier and healthier. And you get healthier. You get healthier. So I'm going to give us an assignment. Uh, the first thing, I guess, would be if, if you're not a Christian, I really encourage that. I don't know how else to say it. It's the right thing to do to give your life to Jesus. If you want to live for him and if you want to live forever, and if you want to have all your guilt and all your shame and all your sins, it's just, it's just, it's so good. It's just, it's, it's an offer that's amazing. But for those of us that, that are Christians in the room, I, I want to give you an assignment. 
I, I want to ask you this week, for seven days in a row, we, we know the general will is to do good deeds and is to love people. But now I'm going to ask that ministry of the Spirit work in you that he tells you what to do. So for seven days, I'm going to ask you to do some good deeds, one, one a day. One good deed a day that you know, that you know, that you know the Spirit is leading you to do. It's not a whim, it's not a guess, but God's leading you. To, and if you don't know it, you can't hear it, just do it anyway. It'll be good for you. And you'll be happy. Okay? But for seven days, I'm going to ask you to think about and to be very intentional about doing some great, amazing deeds for people. I don't know if they're in your family. I don't know if they're in your neighborhood. I don't know if they're in the church. That's not the right question. You just ask and you just listen and you let his spirit lead you. Let's stand. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front. If you're not a Christian, I highly encourage this. If you are a Christian and you want some help with your faith this morning, my faith quotient is a little low. I need, I need my faith bolstered. I need, I need my faith pumped up a little bit. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for giving your life for us. Thank you for being the king and the high priest and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for shedding your blood. Now use us as your hands and feet and let us leverage every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.